figure in that series. And you know that one of the most memorable lines given in that series about Aslan is that he is not a tame lion. He is not safe. But if you read through the first book, The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he really mostly seems fairly tame and fairly safe. He's tender and kind to Lucy and Susan. He is encouraging to Peter. And even if he is a bit stern to Edmund for his rebellion, he actually gives his life so that Edmund can be rescued. He appears to be kind and tender and gentle. But if you keep reading in Lewis's series and you get to a little book, one of my favorite books in that series called The Horse and His Boy, you will begin to see a different picture of Aslan. You'll watch as Aslan terrifies two young children named Shasta and Arwen. Uh, You'll you'll watch as one of them is, is scratched by his claws on the back. You'll watch as one of them is scared in a cemetery, and you'll read that story, and you'll begin to wonder, maybe he really isn't safe or tame. And really, it's only in zooming out and seeing the entire story that you begin to make sense of why Aslan in that story behaves as he does. I think perhaps something kind of similar is happening in today's passage when we look at Jesus Christ. If you're honest and you listened to the scripture reading a moment ago, you might have wondered if Jesus is just having a bad day, maybe a little bit grumpy. He walks into the temple and drives out money changers. He says to a fig tree, be cursed, and the tree withers up and dies. What in the world is going on? Jesus is not safe. We've said that before. And it's certainly something that we've seen as we've studied Matthew's gospel. And yet, most of the time so far, he seems to be gentle and tender and kind. And yet, here we are on the Monday morning leading up to his crucifixion, and Jesus seems to be going haywire. What's going on? Begin to understand what Jesus is doing and why when we... Zoom out just a bit and get the scope of what's happening. See, as Jesus is walking into the city of Jerusalem, he is not merely walking into the city as he's preparing to eventually die. He is fulfilling prophecy after prophecy, one after another. We saw some that he fulfilled last week. This week, he's fulfilling a prophecy made 500 years earlier by a prophet named Malachi. 500 years before the accounts in Matthew 21, Malachi the prophet is writing to God's people, and he's writing primarily with concerns about their worship. The worship in Malachi's day to the outside observer would have looked pretty good. They worshiped with intensity. But Malachi, as he writes his prophecy, he says that they were worshiping in the wrong way. They were worshiping for the wrong reasons. And as a result, they were worshiping the wrong God. And in the end, their rotten worship bore rotten 
fruit. The Lord was not pleased with worship in Malachi's day, and yet he wasn't giving up on his people either. And so Malachi the prophet prophesied that there would come a day when God himself would enter the temple and purify and cleanse the worship of God's people. Listen to Malachi 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In Jesus' day, the worship of God's people looked a lot like it did 500 years before in the days of Malachi. Just like in Malachi's day, the people, many of them were worshiping in the wrong way. Many of them were worshiping for the wrong reasons. And as a result, they were worshiping the wrong God. And in the end, their worship, their rotten worship, bore rotten fruit. So Jesus' first order of business when he enters Jerusalem is to walk into the temple like Malachi predicted and to cleanse it like fire and soap. And from this account this morning in Matthew chapter 21, if you're not already there, grab your Bible, turn to verse 12. It'll help you if you're following along in your Bible. We're going to learn this kind of big idea from our text this morning. We will be seriously wrong about worship unless we carefully follow Jesus. Four truths about worship that we're going to consider this morning. If we're going to carefully follow Jesus, we need to know these four truths. Number one, it matters how we worship. Number two, it matters why we worship. Number three, it matters who we worship. And number four, we'll consider what happens when we worship. So with God's help, let's look at number one. It matters how we worshiped. If you had just entered into a city the way that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, with people shouting your name, laying down palm branches and jackets on the ground in front of you so you don't even have to touch the ground, people crying out and singing your praises. If you entered a city like that, what would be your first order of business? Would it be to do what Jesus does? To enter into the temple and start flipping over tables? Look with me at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, we have seen Jesus use his power for all sorts of things. He has fed thousands. He has walked on water. He has calmed storms. He has healed the sick. He has raised the dead. But now, for the very first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is using his power against people. Think about that. Walking into the temple, flipping over tables, and driving people out. What's going on? Jesus in a bad mood? Why is he behaving this way? 
We need to remember that the people were there to celebrate the Passover festival. The Passover in Jesus' day for a Jewish person was kind of like the 4th of July and Christmas combined. And my neighborhood, we're still celebrating the 4th of July. We're shooting up fireworks every single night, keeping the kids awake. It's great. Welcome to Pocosin. And Jesus' day, here's a Passover. It's kind of this big celebration. Everybody's really happy. And there's people coming from all over the known world to Jerusalem. So thousands, if not millions of people flocking to this city from all the known corners of the world so that they can partake in this festival. And as they enter into the city, they're coming from all sorts of places where there's all sorts of currency and they need to get their money exchanged so that they can purchase the things necessary for the sacrifices. You've got to buy a lamb. You've got to perhaps have oil or grain for a grain offering or pigeons for a sin offering. And so these money changers served a necessary function. Somebody needs to help these folks have money so they can go and worship in the temple. So why is Jesus driving them out? Some have argued that the problem was these money changers were ripping people off. You know, maybe it's kind of like when you go to the airport and you get an exchange. The exchange rate at the airport is always like twice as bad as it is on the street. You know, maybe in the temple, the exchange rates were really high and maybe these money changers were ripping people off. Well, that's possible, but the text doesn't really say that's the reason why. In fact, Jesus actually tells us why he's driving them out of the temple. Look at verse 13. After driving these folks out of the temple, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now let me just give you a little tip. When you're reading the gospels and you ever see Jesus say, it is written, and then there's a quote, it would help you to understand if you go back to that quote and kind of read the whole passage, okay? I hope you kind of understand, get the, the flow of what Jesus is saying. He might quote a line from some Old Testament prophet, but he intends for us to think about the whole unit. So listen to the passage that Jesus is quoting in Isaiah chapter 56. It'll be on the screen for you as well. Beginning in verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. Skip down to verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Well, what's the point of those verses? Isaiah the prophet is saying, listen, if you are faithful to the God of the covenant, even if you're a Gentile, you're going to be welcomed into the temple. You're going to be welcomed. Even if you're not born into the family of Abraham, if you will keep the covenant and trust in this God, you will be welcome. This is a house of prayer available for all nations. But 700 years later, after Isaiah prophesied those words, the religious leaders are pushing the Gentiles out of the temple. I'm going to have a diagram on the screen for you of the temple 
um, the temple courts were arranged kind of like boxes inside boxes. The outermost court, you probably can't read the small print there, but the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles. That was the place where if you were a Gentile, you could go and you could worship God in his temple, in his house of prayer. Inside that was the women's courtyard and then the Israelites' courtyard where the Jewish men could go. Inside that was the priest's courtyard and inside that was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go and only once a year. Now, most scholars believe that these money changers were operating in the court of the Gentiles. So in other words, the place where the Gentiles were welcome to go and worship the God of Israel was teeming with distraction and money changers and noise, and there was no place for people to pray. Maybe to help illustrate what that might be like, let's just imagine that we made a rule at PBC, if you have a kid six and under, raise your hand if you've got a kid six and under. Hold your hands up. Okay, we're so glad you're here today. We're not making this rule, but let's just say we said if you have a kid six or under, you have to sit in the lobby. Okay, there's the court of the parents with young children. That's where you get to go. And let's just say, to try to help, you know, the kids have something to do in the service, let's put, you know those little carousels they used to have outside of Kmart, you know, with a little, you know, you put a quarter in. You guys know what a quarter is? It's a little coin. You put a quarter in before credit cards, and there's this little kind of carousel sort of thing, and you go around and make some noise, and the kids can kind of stay occupied on that. Let's put some bouncy houses out there in the lobby, too, and let's have some, you know, a little coffee shop where you can get caffeinated before you come in here. All of a sudden, what's happening to the parents of six-year-olds. They can't pay attention to anything. The place that we said, that's your place, has been totally filled up and crowded with distraction. That's exactly what's happening in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus walks into that courtyard and sees all that distraction, and he drives them out so that the nations can come in. The problem is not necessarily the money changers, but where they're conducting their business. They could have easily done it outside of the temple grounds, but they did it in a way that impedes those who desire to worship God to go to him. If, if the religious people, if the chief priests had paid careful attention to the scriptures, they never would have allowed such things to happen in the courtyard of the Gentiles. That's why Jesus draws them back to Isaiah 56. He says, haven't you read? This is the, God's intention for this temple, that it would be a house of prayer for all nations. If they had just paid attention, they never would have allowed this behavior in the temple. Now, Brothers and sisters, we too must pay careful attention to the scriptures if we want to worship God rightly. Brother, sister, friend, it is not enough that you worship God. God cares how you worship God. I saw a tweet the other day that said this, it's Sunday. If you want to be with Jesus, take a nap, tell a good story, 
drink some wine, share a good meal, defend the oppressed, make the self-righteous angry, and if it will bring peace, joy, and love into your life, attend a gathering of his followers. What's the problem with that tweet? It completely ignores the word of God. God's word tells us how to worship him. Why do we at Pocosin Baptist Church devote so much time in our worship services to prayer? Why do we take time to pray different types of prayer when we gather? Why do we pray prayers of praise and prayers of confession and prayers when we bring our requests to God, a prayer of supplication? Why do we do that? For some of you, if you're relatively new to us, this might be weird to you. Why do we do that? Because as we look at the scriptures, we see that God's word repeatedly emphasizes prayer as an essential part of the gathering. We gather and we pray. Jesus is even stressing it right here in our text. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Why do we sing? Why do we strive to sing songs that are singable by the congregation rather than merely just having like the, the rock band on the stage with an incredible performance and you just sit down and watch? Because God's word repeatedly commands Christians to gather and sing. Why do we read so much scripture in our meetings? From the call to worship to the word of comfort after the prayer of confession to the scripture reading. Why do we do that? To the benediction? Because God's word is clear that his church is meant to be built on the foundation of the scriptures. Why do we devote so much time, I repeat, so much time of our worship services every week to listening to someone stand up here and talk about the Bible? Is it because I just need to talk and you guys need someone to listen to and I don't have anything else to do? Well, maybe that might be what's going on. But we do it because God's word is clear that on the foolishness of preaching, God saves sinners, and sanctifies his people. Why do we encourage new believers to get baptized? Why do we take communion? Because God's word tells us to do these things. Now listen, if you're our guest this morning, PBC doesn't do any of these things perfectly. I'll be the first to tell you that. But our desire is to root our worship in the scriptures. Listen to me, the worship gathering is not the place for innovation. The worship gathering is not the place for experimentation. It's not the place for pragmatism. It's the place for obedience. Why do we do these things? Because God's word commands it. If we fall short of the standard in his word, then may Jesus walk into these doors and do the same thing that he did in the temple 2,000 years ago. Because we have no business gathering in here and calling it church if we're not going to follow what Jesus tells us to do. It matters how we worship. Number two, it matters why we worship. It matters why we worship. Picture the scene at the temple that day. The, the, the money changers, the religious people are running out of the building. Tables are flipping 
Pigeons are flying everywhere. People are screaming. Dust is probably kicking up everywhere. It's just chaos and craziness. And as everybody or all these people are are running out of the temple, there's a group of people walking in. Isn't that interesting? Like the firemen walking into the fire as everyone is running out. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. In Jesus' day, some religious leaders placed severe restrictions on the handicapped. They would say maybe something like this. If you want to be in this temple, you have to use the special kind of crutch that's sanctified and not unclean, or sit on this special kind of cushion, and then you're welcome. There was one group of religious leaders in Jesus' day that wanted to kick out the the blind and the lame out of the temple entirely. And so perhaps many of these broken men and women are on the outskirts of the temple, and all of a sudden, as Jesus is driving people out, they're coming in. This is, by the way, Jesus' final official healing miracle. We will watch him repair a bloody fallen ear a little bit later this week in Matthew's gospel, but where Jesus actually devotes time to the ministry of healing people that come to him, this is the final time we see it in Matthew's gospel. So why does Jesus welcome these men and women and drive out the others? Why welcome some and not others? Here's the answer, I think. One group recognized their need, and the other did not. Jesus tells a story that illustrates that in Luke chapter 18. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There's one man. And then Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus summarizes the story for us. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the lesson, brother, sister, friend. If you come to worship seeking to impress God or other people, your worship will be rejected. But if you come here to this gathering of God's people, humbly recognizing your need, your worship will be received. So let me ask you, brother, sister, friend, why are you here? Are you here thinking that you've arrived or because you know that you haven't? Are you here to impress or because you need Jesus? 
The crippled men and women that are entering the temple in verse 14 are a picture of how every one of us must come to Jesus. We leave our old life behind and we turn to Jesus alone for rescue. If you come to Jesus recognizing your need and believing he is the only one who can save you, he will not cast you out. If you already come to Jesus like that, you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, you've confessed your sin, you've come to Jesus recognizing your need, asking him and him alone for rescue. Let me just remind you, you are not immune to this error either. Even Christians can sometimes worship for the wrong reasons. Do you know that? Christians, I think, more often than we'd like to admit, sometimes suffer from spiritual amnesia. We, we think that these worship gatherings, we tend to think of them more like a job interview than a hospital visit. Think about the difference between those two things. When you go to a job interview, what do you do? Put on your best outfit. Put on some extra cologne or perfume. Make yourself nice. Check your teeth. Make sure there's no lettuce in your teeth. You put on deodorant, right? Take a shower. You, you put your best foot forward, right? And, and while you're there, you're going to kind of talk yourself up, right? You're, you're not going to talk about the time you got fired from a job doing night cleanup because you were playing basketball on the clock. It's an oddly specific story. I don't know where that came from, but that's another, another thing. You talk about all the great things you accomplished in the workplace, right? I did this, I did that. You go there, job interview, best foot forward. Here's all the good things I've done. Here's who I am. What about when you go to the hospital? Man, you're rocking sweats and that holy T-shirt that your husband or wife has been pleading with you to get rid of. You're not worried about deodorant. You don't need to brush your teeth or shower. You don't care. And when you're there, you're telling everybody about how horrible things are. You want to show that doctor or those nurses just how bad things are. Why? So you can get help. Something happens in the mind of a Christian when we get spiritual amnesia. We begin to think that this is more like a job interview than a hospital visit. When you walk into this room as a Christian, you ought to walk in this room aware of your need. Now, I'm not saying... Walk in here with your sweats and your holy t-shirt and don't put on deodorant, okay? Please do all those things. But I am saying this. If somebody asks you, how are you doing? Don't lie and say, I'm too blessed to be stressed with a fake smile, pretending like everything's fine. Tell the truth. I'm struggling. I'm anxious about this or that. I'm really feeling bitter about this or that. But don't stop there. Say to that brother or sister, as you're open about what you're struggling with, would you pray for me? Would you help me? Would you help me think through how to respond rightly and think rightly about this? Because, you you know, at the hospital, you tell everybody all your problems. Why? So you can get help, not just so people feel sorry for you. 
In the same way when we gather here, let's be open and honest about why we're here and who we are and what we're dealing with and ask our brothers and sisters to come alongside us and help us. It matters who we worship. It matters why we worship. Number three, it matters who we worship. If you were to ask any self-respecting Jew in Jesus' day, who is the Passover about? They would say it's about God. This is a celebration of how God rescued his people from bondage to Egypt. You just go back to that story. You read it in the book of Exodus, and you, you watch how God rescued his people through ten plagues. These were not anything that the people of Israel could have done for themselves. God did this. God rescued his people, and so they gather into the city of Jerusalem on Passover to remember the rescue that God provides. They worship God. So it wouldn't be surprising then that some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day are a bit frustrated because it looks like to them that some of the people are worshiping a man. Look at the text, verse 15. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? If you were with us last week, you heard that Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, verse 25, and it literally means save us. The title, Son of David, was a nickname for the Messiah. So these little kids heard the crowds as Jesus is walking into this, or riding into the city of Jerusalem, and they're crying out, save us, Messiah! And they're praising him, and they're worshiping this Jesus. And so the Pharisees, the leaders, the, the religious folks come up to Jesus, and they say, don't you hear what they're saying? The implication is, get them to stop. But notice how Jesus responds in the second half of verse 16. And Jesus said to them, yes. Yes, I have heard what they were saying. And then he says, have you never read? By the way, what an offensive thing to say to someone whose job is to study the Bible. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus once again responds with Scripture. Much like he did in the wilderness when Satan tempted him, he responds with the word of God. Think of about how deeply God's word is embedded in the heart and soul and mind of King Jesus. Says, Haven't you read? And then he quotes the passage that our sister Sandra opened up our service with this morning in Psalm chapter 8. Uh, look at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 8 on the screen. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, if you're paying attention, and if you're not, now's the time to wake up a little bit. If you're paying attention, you might notice that the quote 
in Psalm 8, verse 2 on your screen is a little bit different from what Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 16. The psalm says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. But Jesus says, prepared praise. Interesting. Did Jesus mess up on his Bible drill that week? Did he not know the the verse? Jesus is actually quoting from a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. This was the Bible of Jesus' day. And in the Septuagint, the translation is exactly as Jesus quotes it. I, I share that because sometimes we're told that we cannot trust are translations of God's Word. If you really want to know what God said, you have to learn Hebrew or Greek. If you don't have the original languages, you cannot trust the translations that you hold in your hand. That's what some people will say. And yet, look at what Jesus is doing right here in this story. He quotes a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament as if it's the word of God with authority and power. What does that mean, dear Christian who can't read Hebrew or Greek? You can trust a faithful translation of God's word. And by the way, if you read the context of Psalm 8, it's quite clear that prepared praise is actually an appropriate translation. That's what the whole psalm is all about. So, more important than the translation differences in Psalm 8 is Jesus' main point. If you go back to Psalm 8 on the screen, go back to verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You notice how the first instance of Lord is in all caps. Do you see that? Many of our English translations will do that. Whenever you see in the Old Testament the word Lord in all caps like that, it's telling you that what's the word that's used in the original language is the word Yahweh, the covenant name for God. You remember the story in Exodus 3 is, is Moses is going to go to Egypt to deliver God's people. And Moses says, he's talking to this burning bush, and he says, well, you want me to go to Pharaoh? What am I supposed to say? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And the voice from the burning bush says, I am. It's the word that come, the word Yahweh comes from. I am that I am. This is the covenant name for God. <clears throat> Notice what Jesus is doing. In Matthew 21, when Jesus, he takes this quote about praise given to Yahweh, the God that created the universe, the God that called Moses, the God that rescued his people at the Passover. And Jesus says, I am that God. I am that one. It's perfectly appropriate for these little children in the temple to worship me as God because That's what Jesus is saying. In a few days, the religious leaders are going to condemn Jesus to death for the sin of blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Maybe this is the moment when they first decide that's that's why we're going to arrest him. That's the charge. We don't know 
because before they're able to respond to Jesus, verse 17 tells us that Jesus left. But, but listen to me, little kids in this room, listen to me for a second. When Jesus left the city of Jerusalem that night to go stay with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Bethany, when he left that night, he left happy with the little children. He was more pleased with those little children than he was with all the religious leaders in the temple. Why? Because they were praising his name. It was such a joy this past week to gather here with many of you to care for little children and teach them the good news about Jesus during our vacation Bible school. I don't know what God is going to do with the seeds that were planted by the songs and the Bible teaching and the loving relationships and the way you interacted with those kids. But let me tell you something. Jesus is pleased when the little ones praise him. Parents, pouring into your kids and teaching them the truths about God pleases Jesus. Grandparents, taking those little ones on your knee and telling the story of Jesus, that pleases Jesus. But more important than how the religious leaders responded to Jesus' claim to be God is how you and I will respond. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, do you worship Jesus as God? It's easy to answer yes to that question. But the real evidence of whether or not you truly do comes from the life that you live. Which leads us to point four from our text this morning. What happens when we worship? What happens when we worship? I've included the next few verses in our study this morning because they reveal to us the results of true worship. If we're faithful to worship God in the right way, according to his word, and worship God with the right motivation, not to impress God or anybody else, but because we need him, if we're faithful to worship God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, if we're faithful to do those three things, points one, two, and three, our lives will change. I want you to notice in our text two results of true worship. First of all, we will produce fruit together. Look at verses 18 and 19. In the morning... As Jesus was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. We just established that Jesus is truly God. He's receiving the praise that only God deserves. And yet the text also shows us that Jesus is truly man. He's hungry. And he's traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem every single day to go into the city and teach. And it's a little bit of a hike. Perhaps Mary, Martha, and Lazarus don't have a lot of extra food for breakfast. Perhaps it's just a long hike. And Jesus, along the way, he's hungry. And he sees a fig tree in the distance as he's walking towards the city of Jerusalem. Now, based on the time of year when the Passover was celebrated, we know that this was not the time when fig, figs were ripe. 
In fact, Mark's gospel actually makes that explicit. Mark 11 verse 13 says it was not the time for figs. And yet Jesus sees a tree in the distance, a fig tree with leaves on it. I'm not an expert on fig trees, but from what I've read, the leaves appear before, or the fruit appears before the leaves. So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, then there should be fruit on it too. So Jesus sees a fig tree, it's got leaves on it, it should have fruit on it. He goes up to the fig tree and there's no fruit, and so Jesus curses the fig tree. Up until this point in Matthew's gospel, every single one of Jesus' miracles has brought blessing and grace. This is the first miracle that Jesus performs that brings a curse. Why? Is Jesus hangry? I mean, we can relate to that, right? You ever been so hungry you just start taking out your anger on whatever the smallest thing near you is? Kicking the tires of your car or kicking the dog or yelling at a little kid. The scriptures are clear that Jesus is without sin. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' anger when cleansing the temple was not sinful anger. It was a righteous anger to care for the Gentiles wanting to enter the temple, to uphold the glory of God and how he ought to be worshiped. Here with the fig tree, I don't think Jesus is angry at all. I think Jesus is doing this to make a point. It's significant that the cursing of the fig tree happens immediately after his interaction with the religious leaders in the temple. Here's the point that Jesus is trying to make. You better not promise fruit and deliver none. That's his point. The leaves on the fig tree were a false promise. They made the tree appear fruitful. But on closer inspection, there wasn't any genuine fruit on the tree just like the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Their religious activity made them appear fruitful. But on closer inspection, they had no good fruit. So what's the lesson for us? What fruit, Christian, what fruit can you or others point to from your worship of Jesus? How has your time in God's word changed over the past few years or since you became a Christian? How has your faithfulness to God's people changed over the past few years? Are you nearer to his people now or more distant from his people than you were a few years ago? Are you living like you believe that Jesus is God? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, Jesus is God. I, I believe that. But what if we looked at your finances? Would that be evidence that you really believe that? Or how you relate to the opposite sex? Or your thought life? Or how you speak to other people? Or how you parent? If we looked at those nuanced areas of your life, would there be evidence that you really believe that Jesus is God? What if we looked at your anger? 
Would we see good fruit in your life? Are you getting angry about the things that make Jesus angry? Are you handling your anger the way that Jesus handled his? Let's, not, let's be careful, brothers and sisters, though, not to only think about bearing fruit as individuals. We have an individual responsibility to bear fruit. You, Christian, you must bear fruit. But the biblical picture is that we're going to bear fruit together. As God's people, we do it together. One key place where this is seen is in John 15, verses 6 to 8. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You notice every time the word you is underlined on your screen, it's actually a plural you, what our southern friends would, would call y'all. What's Jesus saying? If you f call yourself a Christian, you will bear fruit, but you don't bear fruit alone. You abide in Jesus, yes, but you abide in Jesus alongside his people. We bear fruit together. This is one reason why the local church is so important. If you show me a Christian who is not bearing fruit, I will show you someone who is likely disconnected from the local church. We're called to bear fruit together. Second result of true worship is that we will exercise faith together. But beginning in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So the disciples asked Jesus, how did this happen? Jesus says, if you have faith, you can move mountains. Now, remember, we said a couple weeks ago that moving mountains was a popular metaphor in Jesus' day for overcoming obstacles. It was a figure of speech. So Jesus is not promising that you can stand before a mountain and believe enough and move it. His point is that whatever obstacles are in your life, Christian, you can overcome them with faith. But once again, there's something important going on with the pronouns in these verses. Every time our English translations say you, it's plural in the original. So verse 21, truly I say to y'all, if y'all have faith and don't doubt, y'all will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if y'all say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever y'all ask in prayer, y'all will receive if y'all have faith. <laughs> What's the point? We exercise faith together. Listen, this to me is so transforming when I think about this passage because we think sometimes when we see Jesus talk like this that Jesus is saying, as long as I have enough faith, whatever I ask for, I'm going to get. But Jesus, the guardrails that he's putting on that are the people of God. Together as we pray we helped each other to make sure that we're praying for things that actually honor the Lord. And when we do that, 
we will receive. So for example, this morning, we prayed for God to strengthen our worship as a church. We asked him to end human trafficking. We asked for people from Malta to be saved. Do you know how God is going to answer those requests? Yes. That's his answer to every single one of those requests. Maybe not in the way we expect or in the time we expect. But there is coming a day when all of those requests will be answered. There is coming a day when our worship will be perfected. There is coming a day when never again will an image bearer of God be taken from their family and used for evil purposes. There is coming a day that when all who would do such things will f stand before their judge. There is coming a day when people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language, including people from Malta, will bow before King Jesus and say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. All of those requests are yes in Jesus. So as we pray, brothers and sisters, and those, especially those longer prayers, we might be tempted to check out. Can I plead with you? Lean in and say, Jesus, yes, do this and more. Jesus says that if we're truly worshiping him, we will exercise faith together. By the way, when Jesus talks about doubting, he says, if you have faith and do not doubt on our own, we're so prone to doubt, aren't we? But what happens when we're together? When you doubt, who encourages you, encourages you? Your brother, your sister, your church family, and together our faith is strengthened. In The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis tells the story of the creation of Narnia, and much like our own world, evil entered Narnia shortly after it was created, and it came through the sin of a male human being, through the foolishness of a boy named Diggory. Towards the end of the story, Diggory has to face Aslan and give an account for his evil, for his actions. And eventually, Aslan says this to Diggory, do not be cast down. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. As Jesus walks into the temple, fulfilling the prophecy that Malachi made 500 years earlier, he's also pointing us forward to how the worst of that anger will fall upon himself. On Monday, Jesus casts out the robbers from God's presence so that the Gentiles, the broken, and the outcast can enter in. And on Friday, Jesus was crucified as a robber between two thieves and was cast out of God's presence. Why? So that the Gentiles, the broken, and the outcast could be brought in. On Monday, Jesus cursed a fig tree to show what would happen if God's people don't bear fruit. And on Friday, Jesus became a curse by hanging on a tree to make it possible for God's people to bear good fruit. The worst came upon himself. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, 
You'll never be able to worship rightly until you look first to the cross of Jesus. And if you're in this room as a follower of Jesus, your hope to worship rightly comes not from your own strength, but from the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, your beloved son. We thank you that he is not safe, but he is good. Jesus, we thank you that the worst fell upon yourself. We thank you that you endured the cross, despising the shame. And Father, as we seek to worship you in the right way and with the right motives and according to your word, we pray that we would do it by looking to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together? the throne of glory nothing in my hands I bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king I will give to you my burden you give to me your strength come and fill me with your spirit as I sing to you this praise you deserve the greater glory overcome I lift my voice to the king in need of nothing empty-handed i rejoice you deserve the greater glory overcome with joy i sing by your love i am accepted you're a good and gracious King. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend, safe, secure in you forever. Pour out my praise again. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome, I lift my voice to the King in need of nothing. Empty handed, I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. Overcome with joy I sing. By your love I am accepted. You're a good and gracious King.
King. 